You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. up um, our Preach the Gospel series, and this is a series, if you remember, several weeks back, we kicked it off with a biblical understanding of what the gospel of Jesus really is, and we kind of compared and contrasted it over against the four American gospels, uh, which we have defined as the works righteousness gospel, the evangelical gospel, the reform gospel, and the prosperity gospel. Uh, next in our series, we identified four important practices that we need to embody if we're going to effectively preach the gospel in our culture. And so those were the practices of one, practicing hospitality, inviting people who are far from God into your home. Two, learning how to find where the spirit is at work and joining him there. Three, pursuing justice. And last week we talked about living a life that is so good that it demands a gospel explanation. And today as we come to an end in our series, uh, I'm going to look at a story from Acts 19. So I'm going to invite our scripture reader up. Um, If you want to go ahead and come up and if you will stand with me today out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's word. Today is Acts 19, 8 Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew power. Thanks, Bethany. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, which we know is active and living. Um, It's just as powerful as if you were standing here in the flesh and speaking it to us. But we do ask right now the Holy Spirit that you would work in and through this, that it would not just be like a lecture or a talk today, but that this would truly be words that that fall on fertile soil in our hearts and take root and produce an abundance of fruit, not just here, but across the world, for our good, the good of our city, the good of our world, and ultimately for your glory. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. I think I can put a picture of her on the screen, but let me introduce you to an incredible woman. Um, This is Perpetua. 
she was born in 182 AD to a wealthy family in Carthage. She was a follower of Jesus. And at the age of 22, after the birth of her very first child, Christianity was made illegal. And as a result, this kind of state-sanctioned genocide of Christians broke out across the Roman Empire. Uh, eventually, uh, Perpetua would be arrested. She'd be thrown in prison for her faith. And all she had to do to go back to her husband and to go back to her infant child was to recant her claim that Jesus is Lord, pinch a little incense on the altar, say instead that Caesar is Lord, and then she could be set free. Uh, her dad actually begged her um, to recant, to say that Jesus is not Lord, so she could be set free. And here's what he said to her. He said to Perpetua, do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. You will destroy all of us. Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. Can you imagine being this woman? On one side is the Roman Empire, on the other side is your family, and both of them are telling you, deny that Jesus is Lord and live. And yet over and over, as the Roman soldiers would come to her and give her a chance to recant, she would say again and again, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. As the story goes, the night before Perpetua was executed, she had a vision or this dream, and there was a ladder that was reaching up to heaven. At the bottom of the ladder was a dragon. She stepped right over the dragon. She climbed up the ladder. There was a massive garden. In the center of the garden was a shepherd who gave her a piece of cheese. She said it was sweet to the taste, and then he said to her, welcome, my child. That night, Perpetua knew, I'm going to die. But she said that she had absolute peace of heart. In the book, The Act of the Christian Martyrs, which is a third century writing, it tells her story like this. The day of her victory dawned and she marched from the prison to the amphitheater, joyful as though she was going to heaven. With a calm face, trembling if at all, with joy rather than fear, Perpetua went along with a shining countenance and a calm step. She began to sing a psalm. She screamed as she was struck on the bone. Then she took the trembling hand of the young gladiator and guided it to her throat. It was as though such a woman could not perhaps have been killed had she herself not willed it. Perpetua is um, a woman who made an ultimate choice. And the choice really for her wasn't between life and death. It was a choice between allegiance to Jesus and allegiance to what Jesus called the world. And she's actually, if you study church history, just one of millions of Christians down throughout church history who, because of their faith, chose to do the exact same thing. Men and women who chose to follow Jesus, not because they saw him as a therapist who could just make their lives better, but because they truly believed that Jesus was the resurrected Savior who was so good that he was worth giving up everything for, even if it meant giving up their own lives. Gerald Sitzer, he talks about it like this. He says, persecution, suffering, and death have always been at the heart of the Christian message. We will never understand Christian spirituality, what it is and what makes it unique, unless we grasp the significance of martyrdom. The early Christians died because they confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. His lordship challenged all other claims on their lives, wealth, status, power, and Rome itself. When forced to choose, they chose to follow Jesus no matter what the price. In other words, when faced with a decision between follow Jesus and suffer or reject Jesus and prosper, time and time again, Christians chose suffering, hardship, loss, and even death. And this is still happening today. I don't know if you knew this. 
Um, in fact, uh, I was reading this past week in research, and according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, over 100,000 Christians are martyred every year for their faith. Can you believe that? Like still, in 2022, like that's happening right now in parts of India, Asia, the Middle East, Christians are being killed for following Jesus. And I know, like, as Americans, it's very unlikely this is going to happen to any of us. I know that most of us will never become martyrs. Few, if any of us, will ever even endure any type of physical persecution. But I do believe, as I mentioned last week, um, that when you look at the trends, we're going to continue to see an increase in emotional, relational, and even vocational persecution. And therefore, the question that I want to try to answer this morning as we come to a close in our Preach the Gospel series is this. How are we going to continue to preach the gospel in a culture that is increasingly seeing the gospel not as good news, but as bad news? Um, How are we in a culture where more and more people are wanting us to just kind of shut up and keep our faith to ourselves? How are we going to faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus? And to answer that question, I want us to look at this story in Acts 19. And, And just to set the context for you, Paul is coming into the city of Ephesus, And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, here's what he says. He says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has been opened for me. But listen to this. And there are many who will oppose me. So that's the tension in Acts chapter 19. There's a wide door for gospel ministry that God has opened. But listen to this, and you need to know this is just a principle in life. Oftentimes, when there comes great opportunity, there comes great opposition. I once heard a World War II pilot say, you know you're flying over the right target when you're getting shot at. And that's what we see happening in Acts 19. Paul is flying over the right target. He's being obedient to Jesus. He's preaching the gospel with boldness. It says that God is performing extraordinary miracles through him. And by the way, whenever the Bible says it's an extraordinary miracle... It's a really big miracle. It's like a miracle, miracle. Um, that's what we see happen in Acts 19, right? Bethany read it earlier. Paul's walking in such a power... That if he was too busy to like come to you and like lay hands on you and heal you, he'd be like, you know what? Here's a handkerchief. Like take it to him. That'll work. Like, can you imagine that? Like grabbing a handkerchief from Paul, walking into a room, there's someone manifesting with a demon and you're like, um, in the name of Jesus, receive this prayer cloth. And like a demon like comes flying out of somebody. Like that's the kind of power Paul is walking in. And so this begins to spread. Eventually, this kind of local Ghostbuster squad, they hear about it, the seven sons of Sceva, and they're like, man, we want that kind of power. Like, that's awesome. And so what do they do? In verse 13, they go up to some guy with a demon, and they say, look with me in the, the text, in the name of Jesus that that Paul guy is always talking about, we command you to come out of him. To which the evil spirit replies, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? I talk about the ultimate diss, right? Like that's when you know you're in trouble. And, and, and one of the questions I've always asked with this text is, how do they know who Paul is? Like, how do demons communicate? Have you ever wondered that? Like, maybe that's just the way my mind works, but it's like, they have a newsletter? Do they have a weekly staff meeting? It's like, I don't really know how they communicate, but they know this dude, Paul, is a major threat to the powers of darkness, and so, uh, I mean, they're, they're now, you know, they, they say to the sons of Sceva, look, we know Jesus, we know Paul, we have no idea who you are. And then look at what happens next in verse 16. The man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's a bad day. I mean, here's men who think about this. They want the power of God 
but they don't want the presence of God. And because of that, they literally get their pants beat off of them. They run out of the city physically, emotionally, and psychologically wounded, and most likely were in therapy the rest of their lives. That is a heck of a negative event on your life map if you're doing that within your DNAs, right? And in the following verses, right, the story begins to spread. And in verse 17 through 20, right, the people of Ephesus, they see this happening out of fear. They repent of their sins. They pledge their allegiance to Jesus. They turn from worshiping creation to worshiping the creator God. And if you're Paul at this point, or if you're, you know, a part of Paul's policy, you're kind of one of the disciples, like, this is awesome. This is fun, right? This is fruitful. Lives are being changed. They're going from death to life. You're like, I'm so glad I'm on team Jesus. Isn't this great? But then look at what happens next. Because the powers of darkness have been poked. In verse 23, it says, About that time, there arose a great disturbance in the way. Talking about those who are practicing the way of Jesus. And so think about this. Because the gospel is preached, what we're about to see is a conflict begins to arise in Ephesus. There's now going to be a clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And here's how it plays itself out. Verse 24 Here's what we read, Acts 19, verse 24. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. Now, let me just stop and say this. Artemis, um, she was a Greek goddess that was worshipped by the people in Ephesus. Literally, um, this was an idol that shaped their entire industry, economy, their family, the religious landscape. The Ephesians, they looked to this idol. Um, they looked to her for not just protection, but prosperity, joy, happiness. And she was a big deal. In fact, I think we have the slide. If you go, you can see the Temple of Artemis. At one time, um, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. I mean, this was a massive building, 126 columns. They were all 60 feet high. And so this, this idol, Artemis, she was a big, big, big deal to the Ephesians. She was so popular that men like Demetrius that were introduced to in verse 24, what he would do is he would make a ton of money off her by making these shrines. And then he would sell you these shrines because you would take them back to your house you would bow down to them, worship them, pray to them, and you believe that if you did, Artemis would bless you and your family, right? So that's what is going on here. And I think the temptation, by the way, let me just say this, whenever we look at all this, we go like, oh yeah, idol worship. That's what like weird people did like back in the day. That's what primitive people did, right? But, but we like, that, we would never do something like that now, right? I mean, we're educated, like, like, we're sophisticated. I mean, like, sure, we send, like, poop emojis and text or whatever else, but, like, but we're so much more intelligent and advanced than those people. So clearly, right, we would never worship idols. Well, in reality, we're not any different than the Ephesians. As Americans, like, we're so much like the Ephesians. In fact, what I would say is the only difference between us and the Ephesians is that the Ephesians' worship of idol was overt and conscious, whereas ours tends to be covert and subconscious. And yet, I would say, still very much as real. Whether it be the idol of comfort, or the idol of control or approval or performance, all of us in here are tempted to make a good thing an ultimate thing. And that's what an idol is. An idol is ultimately whenever we look to someone or something other than Jesus for significance, for satisfaction, and security. And please hear me, guys. When we do this, when we worship money or family or success or pleasure or popularity or whatever it may be, when we put our hope in the creation over the creator, 
you guarantee that in the end it will rob you of the life that you are actually looking for. G.K. Chesterton said this, those who marry the idols of this age will find themselves widows in the next. And you see, that is why we preach the gospel, guys. That is why this is so important. This series is not about like just going and changing people's minds. It is about saving lives. It is about helping introduce people to the one who alone can give them the love and the life that they are longing for. Some of you uh, might remember the story about the atheist Penn Gillette, who was a part of the magician duo Penn and Teller. Um, and there's a story where a Christian witnessed to Penn and another atheist came up to him and said, oh, Christians, like, don't you hate whenever they do that? Like, that doesn't just make you sick. To which he responded by saying the following. I've always said that I do not respect people who do not proselytize or evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? Because the truth is, there are people, even right here in this city, who are lost and heading to hell. And as Christians, man, we have a conviction that the gospel is the good news that they need. We have a conviction, man, that, that, that man, there is good news for everyone, that no matter who they are or what they have done, man, in Christ, there is forgiveness and there is freedom and there is eternal life on offer. And therefore, because that is true, like as a church, not out of self-righteousness or not out of arrogance, but out of compassion and mercy, we preach the gospel. And when we preach the gospel, right, some people are going to believe and be saved, like we see in verse 70 to 20, but then others are not going to respond favorably. And that's what we see happen in the rest of the story, right? Paul preaches the gospel. Some people turn to Jesus, but look what happens also. Demetrius, right, verse 29 the shrine maker, he begins to freak out because Paul is hurting his shrine business, right? His sales are now in major decline because people aren't buying his shrines anymore. They're, they're worshiping Jesus instead of Artemis. And in his own anxiety, he pulls together the crowd. His anxiety becomes their anxiety. And in verse 29, look what happens next. It says, soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people sees Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companion from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. By the way, when you think of the theater, don't think of like the Collins Theater. This is a theater that held 25,000 people. So think of like First National Bank Arena and Jonesboro times two. Even some of the, or verse 30, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him in. I love that about Paul. He's like, man, they're hostile, but let me in there. Like, I want to go preach the gospel. I want to go tell them about Jesus. But in verse 31, even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another. This is like uh, Breck from Anchorman, like, I don't know what we're yelling about, right? Like, that's what's happening here. Um, most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted all the more for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this is a crazy scene. And remember, how did it get started? Because of the preaching of the gospel. A message 
from Paul about Jesus has completely disrupted the entire city. We don't have time to read it all, but eventually a city clerk stands up. She quiets or he quiets the people. The crowd disperses. Paul and his friends then go on to live another day. And there's a lot in there that we could pull out. But here's what I want to do for our purposes today before we end. What I want to do is this. As we come to the end of our series, I want to share with you very quickly three encouragements or three exhortations from Acts 19 that I believe we need to take to heart today if we are going to effectively preach the gospel again in a society that is increasingly seeing the gospel as bad news rather than good news. So three things if you're taking notes. The first being this. If we are going to faithfully preach the gospel in a culture that is increasingly seeing the gospel as bad news, then number one, we have to get comfortable with conflict. It's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. If we are going to preach the gospel in a culture like the one we are living in, we have got to get comfortable with conflict and controversy. Now, let me say something real fast. Some of you are experiencing conflict in your life right now because you're a jerk. Okay? You're self-righteous and you're arrogant. So don't think, oh man, I must be killing it because I've got a lot of people who hate my guts. Right? Like, no, just because you have conflict doesn't mean you're preaching the gospel. But if you are preaching the gospel, you will experience conflict. Um, listen to what Jesus says, okay? If you're like, I don't know, Jared. This is Luke six twenty six. Jesus says, woe unto you when everyone speaks well of you. If everybody around you is speaking good about you, you might stop and say, okay, well, what's wrong with me? Like, what, is it possible that maybe I'm not even preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached? Woe unto you if everybody speaks well of you. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Everyone who desires to live a godly life will suffer persecution. Not might, will suffer persecution. You will face opposition. You will face conflict. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? If I were still trying to please people... I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, if you want to please people, don't follow Jesus because the two will not go hand in hand. If we are going to faithfully preach the gospel in a secular society, we have to stop, listen guys, being so concerned with image management. We're going to have to come to a place where we're actually okay if we don't get to sit at the cool kids table. We're going to have to be okay with the fact that maybe we are a little weird at times. Or maybe not everybody is going to like us. We've got to get comfortable with conflict. And I'm not saying you have to like conflict. I'm not saying you have to try to go search for conflict. I'm just saying in a culture like ours where no one wants to be challenged. Have you realized that now in our culture? No, nobody wants to be challenged anymore. Nobody wants to be told they're wrong. Truth is considered like subjective rather than objective. And therefore, there should be no absolute truth. So like in a culture like this, like you can guarantee if you are preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached, there will be conflict. And that is why if you want to effectively preach the gospel in a post-Christian nation, you need to be comfortable with conflict. But then secondly, because of this, you also need to be courageous. That's my second point. The reason you are here today, if you're a follower of Jesus, is because somebody was courageous enough to walk through their own fear of rejection and either share the gospel with you or invite you to a church service like this or do something that opened you up to experience this good news. And the truth is, if we want to make an eternal impact in the lives of others, we need to be willing to do the same. Because if you truly believe that Jesus is life, 
If you truly believe the gospel saves people from Satan and sin and death and hell and that it brings freedom and fulfillment that people are longing for, then at some point, church, listen to me, we have got to courageously walk through our own fear and our own shame for the purpose of sharing that good news with them. This is what we see with Paul. I mean, a riot is going on in the theater because of him, and yet he's like, let me in there. He's not hiding out. He's not retreating. He's willing to risk his own life for the sake of the gospel. I think of the story in Acts 4 where Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel. And in verse 13, it says, when they, talking about the people that arrested them, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were common and ordinary uneducated man, they were astonished. And they said, these men have been with Jesus. Why did they say these men have been with Jesus? Because of their courage. Their courage. And I believe this is what Jesus is looking for in this culture moment. He's looking for people of courage. He's looking for a people who are willing to, again, walk through their fears and share the truth with others. And for the record, guys, where does our courage and our confidence come from? It does not come from your ability to present the gospel. It comes from the gospel itself. That's where the courage comes from. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it, the gospel, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. People's salvation is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on your ability to present the gospel or to articulate it and have these great illustrations and, and answer every question. It's not where the power comes from. And therefore, I want to encourage you. I want to give you the courage. Like, preach the gospel and just let the gospel do its work. Turn it loose and watch what happens. It is, Paul says, the power of God for salvation. And this is what we see in Acts 19. Think about this. If you were a Christian in Ephesus, don't you think you would have been intimidated at the thought of preaching the gospel? I I mean, like, the whole city worships Artemis. You're looking at her temple, which is one of the seven wonders of the world. And I'm sure you'd be like, wow, she's a pretty big deal. Like, she's powerful. And yet, has anybody in here been to modern-day Turkey lately? Anybody? Anybody visited the Temple of Artemis in the ruins? I just found out this past week, the number one moneymaker in that part of the world comes from Christian tourists who visit the ruins of the Temple of Artemis. So 2,000 years later, a tourist is like, okay, I'm now going to show you where the Temple of Artemis once was, but was taken down because Christians preach the same gospel message that you're preaching today. And as a result, people turned from Artemis to Jesus and everything around Artemis fell apart. Like, isn't that crazy? Like, it was massive. And this, the preaching of the gospel, took it down. That's how powerful the gospel is. It has the ability, guys, to take down the idols of our culture and set people free in Jesus. But for this to happen, we have to get comfortable with conflict. We have to be courageous. And my last point is just this. We also have to be people who not only just speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love. When I look at social media, I feel like there are so many Christians who are angry at the world. Guys, please hear me. As Christians, we are not called to be angry at the world. We're called to be angry for the world. We're called to be passionate about reaching others who are far from God. We're called to love the world as God did with a self-sacrificial, suffering love. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, 
but it's against the powers of darkness. And we have got to remember that. Lest we forget who the enemy is and as a result win or ruin our witness by acting like a fool. By treating others less than human. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, we're to speak the truth in love. In Colossians 4, 6, he says that our speech should be full of grace. And this is not just what we see with Paul in Acts 19. Most importantly, we see it with Jesus himself. Who despite the fact that he never sinned, he was arrested, he was nailed to a cross, and there he was ridiculed, and he was, mocked, he was mocked, he was beaten, and yet he responded by saying, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. This is the ultimate example of suffering love. And it is only when you receive this kind of love can you extend it to others. You know, the reality is, when you choose to live this way, the way we've been talking about in this series, um, when you choose to be gracious and loving, not just with your lips, but with your life, even towards those who might act like your enemies, you need to know, like, guys, if we choose to live this way, like, it is going to cost you something. It will. Like, to lovingly and courageously stand up for Jesus in a culture like ours, it'll cost you riches It'll cost you relationships. It'll cost you your reputation. But I truly believe if we choose not to stand up for Jesus, it will cost us way more. I was just reading in the Gospels this morning, and I I was thinking about Jesus' words in Matthew 10, where he says, and I quote, Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown you before my Father in heaven. Have you ever read that verse before? If you deny me in front of others... I will deny you before my Father in heaven. That's a direct quote from Jesus. In other words, Jesus says, plain and simple, you refuse to stand up for me in the world, I'm not going to stand up for you in front of my Father. Like you choose to hide out and just try to blend in. That's what a lot of us are trying to do. Like, man, I'm, the, I'm, I'm telling you guys, I can be the world's worst about it. Like I so want to be liked by other people. I'm so like still in many ways that sixth grade kid trying to sit at the cool kid's table, Right? And if we keep living that way and we just try to blend in and not be weird or whatever else it may be and we hide what we say is the most important thing about us, which is Jesus, well, then in the end, Jesus says, look, I'm not going to cover you. I'm not. Paul, picking up on this idea later in Romans 10, says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, remember, he's writing to people who when they declare Jesus is Lord, like Perpetua, it meant possible death. And Paul says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. He goes on and he says, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And then here's what Paul says, and we'll end here. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. With that said, here's my hope as as we close out this series. My hope is that if you have never confessed Jesus as Lord of your life, that you would do that. That you would do that today. You've heard me say this probably a thousand times from right here. But one of the greatest lies in the evangelical gospel that we are often pushed here in in Arkansas and the South is that you can have Jesus as your Savior and not have him as your Lord. 
that you can give him your afterlife because who wants to go to hell? So yeah, I'll, I'll pray this prayer. I'll get into heaven. Like You can give Jesus your afterlife without giving him this life because that will not be found in the scriptures. And so my encouragement to you today is that, man, that you would say, I'm going to surrender all of my life to Jesus as Lord no matter the cost because I believe he's worth it. And as a result, like I hope that as people in this church are increasingly doing this, that we really would become a good news people that we would not be ashamed of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would courageously and lovingly in the midst of a pagan society share his message with others and know that as we do, though it will be costly, it will be beautiful in the sight of the one who has saved us and sent us. With that, we're going to transition into a time of communion and I'll invite our band to come forward and those who are preparing the elements to come and get ready to prepare uh, communion. And before you shuffle around, always remember, church, we have people that are here. It's the first Sunday, so let me explain how this works to them so they'll be clear on it. Um, we don't have many closed doors to people here. Um, this is something that we close to those who are not following Jesus. And the reason is not because we don't love you. It's just that there's nothing powerful in taking this. Like, this is just bread and juice for you and so we would ask rather than receiving communion that you actually receive christ that you surrender to him today and if you want to know how to do that and you can come and talk to me i'd be happy to connect with you but if you're here and you've trusted in jesus as your lord and savior this is open to you even if you're not a member of our church um what we do is we come forward we have lines here we'll have someone serving on this side someone here and um basically we'll tear off a piece of bread for you we'll have the gloves on the mask and that represents the perfect life of jesus um, that he lived on your behalf. It then, then be dipped in the juice, which represents his blood shed for you. And you can take that and return to your seat. And we'll sing one final song together. If you don't feel comfortable receiving communion this way, we've got disposable cups in the back. You can grab those um, and you can take there. And if you don't feel comfortable doing either one of those, you're not going to be judged by just staying in your seat. So no one's going to look at you weird or think something bad about you. Like you can just stay where you are and that's okay as well. But I want to pray for us. If you will, go ahead and stand with me. And after I pray, when you're ready, you can come and take communion. And I said, we'll sing one final song and then be dismissed. Father, we do thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to come and to live a perfect, sinless life we could never live, to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, Jesus, we'll celebrate in a couple weeks that you didn't stay dead, but you rose from the grave, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering hell providing a way for us all, no matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us, that we all now can experience true acceptance and forgiveness and freedom and love and joy and peace that we know is ultimately found in you. I pray if there's anyone here who does not know you in that way or watching online or listening to this on a podcast, that you would just, would you, God, right now, just help them to know your love in a real tangible way, to know your mercy, to know your grace to help them to see that you are the author of life and that there is no life, true life, abundant life apart from you, Jesus. And it's in your name that I do pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen.